Well, um, ministry is messy, okay? Uh, caring for people will get you a little dirty sometimes. Um, this, is, uh, this is because, as was said already this morning, we affirm the Bible that we are what the Bible calls sinners. We all are. Um, we're all broken. There's something wrong with all of us. Uh, when, when, one guy put it, put it this way. He said, we're just one beggar telling another beggar where we found the bread, right? We're just one beggar telling another beggar where we found the bread, um, or really where the bread maybe found us. <laughs> so we're accurate. But you know what I'm saying? I mean, that's what we are. I mean, that, that's how, how we're, we're seen in the Scripture. And so if you're new to church, if this is a new experience for you, or if you're new, even new for, to Parkside, understand that Parkside is messy. It should be, okay? Um, it should be. Uh, the more we get the gospel, the more we, we love Jesus, uh, actually the more authentic and real and transparent we will become, right? So why is that? Because the more we understand who we are in light of God and the, understand the grace that God has given us, the more the, the masks start to come off, okay? The less the church games and making sure we look really good ends up happening, the more honest we can become, the more real we can become with one another because your opinion of me and my opinion of you doesn't actually matter, <laughs> Right? It's, it's God's opinion of us in Christ. And we're confident in that, we become real. Right, That's part of that process. And so and the more outward we move as a church, the more we engage people, the more we serve, uh, the messier it's going to be. And that is a good thing. That's, that's ministry. Um, it's been said the church is more like a, a hospital for sinners than, a, than a, a, a museum for saints. And that's an accurate statement. And that understanding, though, upsets people. Okay? It upsets some people. Because some people want to treat, treat the church more like a country club kind of thing, where you can relax, kind of kick back, enjoy the good life, be comfortable, be safe, right? Maybe you just be with some people that kind of like you and not get too, too dirty, too messy. And when you push on that comfort level, it can ruffle feathers. Now, we, we experienced that in this very chapter uh, that we studied last week, and we'll finish up studying uh, this week, uh, this morning. Jesus experienced this. He was having, remember last week, looked at it, he was having a dinner party, with maybe what would be called the, the rejects of society, okay? The people that, the religious people didn't want anything to do with. Matter of fact, they felt if you got too close to them, you got dirty, right? You got unclean. Where's Jesus? He's eating a meal with them, right? He's sitting at the table with them, as it were. Uh, listen to chapter, uh, here in chapter 9, back in verse 11, we saw this last week. He said, when the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, they didn't actually say it to Jesus. I guess they felt intimidated to tell him to his face, but they told his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners. When he, when he heard it, so Jesus overheard this, he said, um, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick, go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice, for I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. So it, it shouldn't be shocking for us to continue to, to kind of spot Jesus with such people, because he was doing ministry. He's always seemingly surrounded. If you read, if you had never read these, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, I encourage you to go read them. And as you read them, it's like Jesus was always surrounded by need. Um, he was always surrounded everywhere he went, literally everywhere he turned, making his life, daily life sort of chaotic. What you just heard read was one day, okay? What was read earlier, this passage we're looking at today was just, just one day uh, in the life of Jesus. Uh, you could read this gospel and think of each kind of event um, as each separate incident in the life of Jesus as, a, as its own kind of self-contained you know, episode. Um, and you can kind of think of it that way. And yet from time to time, we catch a glimpse of the commotion that constantly kind of swirled around Jesus. 
realized that there were no narrators to announce the next miracle is about to take place. There were no subtitles to identify each parable that was spoken. No one was there to, to help the disciples get their place. No one was holding up cue cards about what to say, you know, and, and you cut and you go to the next scene. I mean, that's not, the, you can read it that way, but that's not what's happening. It, what we find with Jesus here is life on the move, with one incident flowing into the next. The scene was constantly changing. New people were showing up as he walked. People were always jostling around Jesus, right? like clamoring for his attention, anxiously awaiting to talk to him. And this is kind of a daily life for him. This is what we see in the Gospels. And what I want you to do this morning is I want you to kind of see Jesus in action, but I want, I want you to kind of be looking over his shoulders. If you look over his shoulder in this passage, you'll see, and there was one little segment here that actually mentioned the disciples, and you see that they actually followed him to what we'll find in a second here, Jairus' house. And so if you look over Jesus' shoulder in these events, you see his disciples. I don't know. I imagine them there with like ice cream cones, you know, just kind of eating their ice cream watching. You know, they're kind of they're seeing what's happening in the scenario. They're watching Jesus. They're following him around. Why? Why, is Jesus has, why does he have them with him? Because he's discipling them, right? He's, he's teaching them. He's training them. This is what he is doing. He is teaching them what it looks like to follow him. Uh, what it looks like to follow him is not only to teach people, but to meet people and love people and care for people right where they are. And so we find that Jesus is, a, is, is God, as the Bible will go on to declare, and he's not content to just, as it were, sit on the throne and, um, and, and throw down decrees for people to follow. He emerges from his throne, he rubs shoulders with the people, and he seeks to minister to them with his own hands, right? And thus after... As the, as the gospel moves on, after Jesus ascends and we get in the book of Acts, we find after his resurrection that he then dispatches his disciples to do the very things that he himself had done, right? He had discipled them. He tells them, go make disciples. He tells them to go train and duplicate themselves. And they implement not just what Jesus taught them, but what they caught from Jesus, right? What they, what they saw him do. This is why Paul would say, uh, today, there's a church, and there well, there's pastors. If you're wondering why we have them and why we are here, Ephesians 4, 11 through 12, he gave the church, here's shepherds, another word for that is pastors and teachers, to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ. So that means our primary job as pastors is not just to give you some insights, okay, into the Bible, or uh, maybe fix some wrong think thinking, supply maybe some good counsel. Hopefully we do those things. That's, that's a good thing, not a bad thing to do. But our primary job is to train you. It's to train you to do ministry, right? To push you kind of outside of your comfort zone a little bit. You know, this, this morning is going to make you uncomfortable a little bit, okay? Because we're going to watch Jesus, and it's going to make us uncomfortable. But if we're followers of Jesus, this is what we do. And so it's, it's not uh, just the responsibility of leaders in the church to care. It's a responsibility of each member uh, to care for each other, to care for those who walk through the door, and to care, th care for those within our community, especially those that differ from us, especially those you disagree with, especially those, as we'll find, who are in need. So here's what I want you to see today. We're going we're gonna to see how to minister to people the way Jesus did, and we're going to do it by watching him. We are the disciples with the ice cream cones, okay? We're the ones in the background watching, seeing what's happening. And what we'll see is we're going to see the following. We need to have eyes to see. We need to have agendas to change, hearts to pray, and faith to believe. Okay, those are the four things we'll look at. Number one, have eyes to see. Okay, so notice in this text here, 
we have this ruler who has a little girl, starting in verse 18. And there's also, we'll find later on in the text, there's two blind men. And then there's a, a man who is, who is also mute. Jesus is present for each and every one of them. And he sees them, and he takes time to minister to them despite their need, despite the fact that, honestly, no one would have condemned him to ignore them or even to, to say things to them, to even rebuke them, right? So let's look at the, the ruler, for example, verse 18. While he was saying these things, I says, behold, a ruler came in and knelt before him, saying, my daughter just died, but come and lay your hand on her and she'll, be, she'll live. And Jesus rose and it says, and followed him with his disciples. So Jesus, it says he was teaching. What was he teaching? If you go back a couple of verses, he was just teaching about fasting, okay? Uh, he was teaching about fasting, what that is, when he is all of a sudden interrupted by a man that the Gospel of Luke now tells us, it's another different writer, this is Matthew, there's Mark and Luke and John, Luke Tells us the same story, gives us a little bit different insight here, a little more insight, the guy's name. He says his name is Jarius, right? He was a, uh, we find out, was a prominent man in society. He was an important man. Matter of fact, he was what was called the ruler of the local synagogue. What does that mean? He, he helped oversee kind of the, the ministry and the teaching ministry of, of that synagogue. It would be sort of like a pastor, like my job would kind of be this morning. That was his job to the Jewish people in their synagogue. He was the ruler of that area. And we see him come to Jesus, and he, it says in the text he threw himself down. Why? Because his, his little girl, according to Luke, his only, his only child, um, is, is dying, actually. The, the, the language here says that it, it, she just died. The better translation probably is as good as dead or is going to die. He had, he had resolved to the fact that she is, she is going to die. Maybe she has died by the time he got to see Jesus. And so as, as, as a good dad, he probably, you can imagine, tried everything he could because of his position in society, he was pretty important, probably had a lot of money and resources. He probably tried everything, but nothing was working. His daughter was dead. Now, at first, you may read this, and maybe you, you, know, just, you know, know, know the Gospels pretty well, and you think, well, of course Jesus should help this guy. Of course he's going to help him. That's, that's a pretty obvious thing. But remember who this guy is and what's happened. He's a religious leader, okay? a leader of the local synagogue. You say, what does that mean? We've already seen. He's part of the group that's hating on Jesus a lot here. Uh, they, they're, the, they're, the one, um, they're the ones at the party we just referenced. Uh, they're the ones criticizing Jesus for eating with sinners. Um, they're the ones who, back in verse 34, actually called Jesus a demon. Um, Luke even records that, uh, that some of the group from Nazareth, another local synagogue in Nazareth, had already tried to throw Jesus off a cliff by this time. So those people, these people... <laughs> are the ones who eventually, the Gospels will go, will stir the crowds to, to rally behind them to have Jesus crucified. So he's, he's a leader of that group, okay? He's a leader of that group. So humanly speaking, Jesus, we would say, maybe be justified to ignore this guy or maybe even give him a piece of his mind, as it were, maybe we think. There's a lot of things that could happen there. Um, but we think about this, Jesus had eyes to see the man. And he is willing to help him despite all of the stuff that, despite how much this guy hates him, or how much his group of people at least hates him. And to Jesus, this man's needs uh, trumped his criticism of him. And the text, I love, doesn't it, it, the text even says Jesus doesn't say a word. Doesn't even say anything to him. But immediately it says he gets up, tells him to lead him to his house so he can help his little girl. Like immediately. He didn't, didn't even say anything to him. He goes, okay, let's go. And he goes. <laughs> Uh, writer Dane Ortland, uh, kind of writing a book uh, on the heart of Jesus, he said, he said this, he said, the cumulative testimony of the four Gospels, that's Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, is that when Jesus Christ sees 
the fallenness of the world all about him, his deepest impulse, his most natural instinct is to move toward that sin and suffering, not away from it. It is true. You read the Gospels. That's his instinct. It's immediately to move towards it, not run away from it, which is our propensity, right? Our propensity to see brokenness and pain and suffering and be like... I'm going to try to stay away from that because that, that, that hurts. That, that's going to take a lot for me to, to help with. Jesus moves towards it, not away from it. So skip down. Look, look at verse 23 now. Go down to verse 23. It says, Jesus came to the ruler's house. And this may be weird to you to read, but I'll explain it. He saw flute players. <laughs> like, why, why are there flute players there? And the crowd making a commotion. What is going on there? All right, let me give you a little bit of background on Jewish tradition and what was happening. At, at a funeral, basically, is what this is. Now, at a funeral, there would be, they would hire professional mourners to come to a funeral, especially if they had a lot of money and had a means. They would hire professional, it was actually a profession. Professional mourners would come to the place to cry and to kind of, kind of help in that manner. And those people had rules. I actually read these. <laughs> There's, I won't bore you with all the rules, but there are rules uh, for, for tearing, ripping garments kind of thing. There was actually 39 different rules of how to do that because in that culture to, to rip your shirt or whatever was kind of a showing of grief. Um, they, had, uh, they also had wailing rules uh, for the dead. Uh, these professionals would study up on the history of the family when they were hired, so they understood the, they could ask intellectual, you know, smart questions and ask about the person who died's life, and they learned a lot about it because this was kind of their job. And each time they would, they would, a new guest would arrive, they'd ratchet up kind of the, the mourning, would kind of go up a little bit higher, the crime would go up a little bit higher to kind of bring those people into the grief of the family. Along with that, coupled with them, they'd also hire professional flute players. Uh, you say, why is that? Well, the music of the flute in that culture was associated with death. Sorry to all you, all you flautists out there. Um, but that's, it was, I'm saying it is now, but it was then associated with death. And it was required that if you had the means, you had at least two flute players and at least one professional mourner would come to your house to, to mourn and play the flute to help you grieve over the loss of your loved one. So this is what's going on, right? So Jesus enters his house. Pandemonium of grief here is happening. It's a chaotic scene. Verse 24. He goes in, in the midst of this scene, right? Mourners are there. Flute players are there. Family and friends are there. Go away. That's a very strong, like, you imagine just walking into a funeral being like, everybody get out. <laughs> so go away. The girl's not dead, but sleeping. And they laugh at him. So Jesus announces that he's going to go wake her up. Right? He's going to wake the girl up. When all of a sudden, you can imagine all the morning stops, and all of a sudden, a bellow of laughter just kind of starts in the room. People start laughing. Why? Well, especially the professionals. They're like, look, we were hired. We wouldn't be hired if this person wasn't actually dead. So we, we know this person is dead, and you think you're going to wake them. You've, you've lost it, right? They're saying, like, who, is this? who does this guy think he is? And Jesus could have said, again, at that point, could have said, the resistance, could have said, okay, you know what? That's it. I'm done with this. Uh, I've gone all this way to try to help, and you guys do nothing but just laugh at me kind of thing. I'm being insulted. But Jesus firmly points his finger and says, I want everybody to get out of here, and everyone does. <laughs> and, and when Jesus said that he was, this is important for us to understand, when Jesus said she was sleeping, now he wasn't denying that she was dead, okay? That's not what he was doing. He was actually introducing a whole different perspective on what it means to die based on his divine power over life and death. Uh, she was dead, true, to her family, to her friends. But as far as Jesus was concerned, she was only asleep. 
right? So he goes inside, he raises her from the dead and brings her back to the parents. This is what he does, incredible story. I mean, Jesus had, had eyes to see the needs that were around him and the pain that was, people were going through. And so the practical application for us in this particular story is do, we, do you have the eyes of Jesus? Do you see the needs around you? Because they are, they are everywhere. Do you see needs that God wants you to help meet? Maybe for someone you don't like. Maybe for someone you don't want to take the time to get to know or someone maybe with a different view on life than you. Jesus made it a point to show us here that he was even willing to care for people that didn't like him, for people that hated him and people that mocked him even. You see this? Again, the rulers, the whole group wanted to kill him and everyone else is laughing at him, right? He's got all this resistance and yet he pushes through those things because he sees past all of that to the need of the person, right? The need of the sufferer. Can you push through personal difficulty to serve others? How has God maybe specifically gifted you to serve people around you? Number two, have agendas to change. Now, back in verse 20, we have a little bit of an incident in the middle of an incident, a story, right? It says in verse 20, uh, behold, a woman who had suffered from a discharge of blood here. It says uh, she, um, uh, for 12 years, came up behind him, touched the fringe of his garment. For she said to herself, if I only touch his garment, I will be made well. So, scene is, Jesus is resolved to go to Jairus' house. And the text seems to indicate that Jairus, actually, in Luke, is almost like pushing Jesus. Let's go. We got to go. We got to hurry up. We got to go. But Jesus has not only eyes to see the need of Jairus and his family, but he's willing to change his agenda, pause his plans for the sake of another need. Now, we don't know this gal's name, but we do know her medical history, right? If you're in the medical field, HIPAA rules don't apply to Jesus, okay? So he reveals her medical history here. And, uh, and Mark even tells us that she had saw all kinds of doctors and nothing had worked. Actually indicates, Mark indicates that actually she got worse from all the things that she tried to do. Tradition tells us in this time period, people were in desperate medical conditions at this time, would result, resort to about anything to find, to find um, a means of getting well. Some of, the, some of the stories I read that said people would carry on ashes of an ostrich egg, that somehow that would help them. Some would, they would drink any kind of, any kind of uh, tonic that was offered to them. Others, this was a crazy one, said they carried around barley corn that was found in the dung of a white donkey. Like somehow that would help heal them if they did. Oh, that reminded me of the eagle egg and Nacho Libre. It's like it's not very, not very effective here. Um, but Luke also tells us here, it gives a little bit more uh, idea here, that she had been bleeding for more than a decade. And we're not sure, again, what her medical problem was, but we do know it was serious and we do know that it made her life hard. You say, how was that? Well, she would be treated like the leper we saw a couple weeks ago. Okay? She, was, uh, she would be considered ceremonially unclean because of her condition. You say, what does that mean? That means for the last decade or so, right, she couldn't be touched or touch anybody. Okay? Could never do that. Uh, she couldn't go to the synagogue or the temple because of her condition. Uh, it had been a dozen long years. Think about that. A dozen years since anyone embraced her, even shook her hand, as it were. Uh, maybe her health was not life-threatening. She had been living with this for 12 years. But inside, you can imagine, she's kind of already dead in her soul, right? She's kind of just become isolated. Add to all that fact, the medical bills were enormous. Uh, Luke tells us that she spent all of her money on treatments. So her condition is she's not only an outcast, she's also poor, and she's not only poor, she's lonely. Right? So I mean, you can, the condition is pretty difficult for this person. So verse 22, Jesus turned, seeing her, he said, take heart, daughter, your faith has made you well. And instantly the woman was made well. 
So the story kind of goes that she was maybe at first afraid to have direct contact with Jesus because that's, that's a bad thing, right? It would be too embarrassing if she did that. Uh, she could even get arrested, get further humiliated because of it. Uh, but she thought if she could just touch his shirt kind of thing, she would be healed. And we can imagine, I can imagine her on the, maybe the fringes of the crowd. You know, the crowd is like surrounding Jesus and she's maybe on the outside of it kind of trying to peek through and notice uh, trying to avoid eye contact, you know, if she back then had a hoodie, maybe she put a hoodie on, you know, she's kind of trying to not be noticed by other people. She tries to move a little bit closer, just kind of like a human pinball, uh, kind of being bounced around in the crowd, and she spots Jesus, and she spots a little tassel at the bottom of his robe, just within her reach. And Luke tells us that she, she touched it. She reached out, she touched it. Immediately when she did, she was made well. And the language here tells us that Jesus immediately turned around, that he noticed Luke tells us that he noticed something had happened. And he immediately turned around and he saw her. And in the midst of all the commotion, remember, he's on his way to Jairus' house. He stops, he turns around, gives his full attention to her. Think of her. She's an outcast, even to her own family. She was trying to go unseen, okay? Um, and, but despite the pushing and shoving and the yelping of the crowd in his ears, Jesus waited, talked to her, recognized her. He was not hurried. I can just imagine her just kind of our eyes bouncing back and forth going like, uh-oh, I'm busted. I got to get out of here as fast as I can. But Jesus stops and looks at her. He treats this lady as if, almost as if they were the only two in the crowd. She was not simply a poor, sick, marginalized woman lost in the crowd. She was someone that Jesus gave his full attention to. That's, that's kind of neat, isn't it? For Jesus, no one is ever lost in the crowd. She wasn't a number. She was an image bearer of God. And all, of, and all of this despite the fact that Jesus, again, had a pressing agenda to help a very serious situation. He took the time because this woman was important. Because, why? Because every human being is important. I shared this quote with you um, when I first got back from sabbatical from C.S. Lewis. He said this, there, is, there's no, there are no ordinary people. I just love how he puts this. There's no ordinary people. You have never talked to a mere mortal. You say, what's a mortal? It's something that dies and goes out of existence. No one is a mere mortal. Nations cultures, arts, civilizations, these are mortal. They can go in and out of existence. And their life is to ours a life of a gnat. It's gone. But it's immortals whom we joke with, whom we work with, marry, snub, and exploit. Immortal horrors or everlasting splendors, right, depending on their eternal destination. They will live forever. We've never rubbed shoulders and talked to someone who is a mere mortal. It's important for us to, to realize that. Sometimes we get so wrapped up in our own agenda, we're not flexible with people that God puts right in front of us. It's probably not malicious many times. It's not like we have an agenda plan, like, okay, I'm going to try to ignore everybody around me today. <laughs> I'm going to try to ignore any need that comes my way. I have set my, I have set my agenda today. I am going to ignore everybody, right? That's, it's usually not our plan, especially if you know and love Jesus. That's not what you're wanting to do, but we do it, don't we? Um, and so, no, we, should, we see here um, that Jesus has shown us that people are always important. Some of you may have gotten so busy right now in life, and sometimes it may be like work is picked up and things are just kind of chaotic and crazy, and life gets really busy. And maybe this morning, God is speaking to you because maybe you've you kind of maybe you've carved out people in your life, like cut them out. Maybe even those in your own house. You've gotten so busy with agendas and work and everything else that you've even neglected your own, maybe your own spouse, maybe your own kids that are around you. Right? How easy it is to see the pressing needs of work and deadlines and tasks. Even, I would say, the pressing task of serving in the church to ignoring the very people that maybe God has put right in front of you to serve. God has a plan to use you. 
not just to have you take up space, right, in a pew on a Sunday, not just to do some good works or to do some church activities or ministries, but to genuinely take the time to lay aside your planned agendas to minister to others, maybe in your own home, maybe in this room right now, maybe those in your neighborhood, those at your work, those who are in this town. Many times the task and agendas can wait, right? They can wait. Uh, he's not here this morning, so I'm going I'm to embarrass him, and then he'll get at me later. But uh, Pastor Jared, I want to bring this up because this is a perfect example. If you guys haven't got to know Jared, I love Jared, okay? I love, I love you all, but I just love Jared too, okay? This is in a very special way. I just like Jared. Jared, Jared is fantastic. And Jared, um, really is a, he's a perfect example of this because he sees people. So the, about a month or so ago, he's driving on the road. With, I think he was with his daughter, and he was driving the road, and he saw a guy walking. Passes by, walking on the side of the road. I think his daughter actually said, Dad, we should go help him. <laughs> so Jared goes, you're right. You know, he kind of turns around and drives back and finds out he, he, he recognizes this guy. Actually, used to go to church here like a decade or so ago. And, uh, and now he's, he's homeless. And Jared goes, hop in, you know. And so he drives him back, finds out where he's staying. Uh, matter of fact, one, uh, Sunday night after that, him, you know, we, we went and we got, we got boxes of, of food from the storehouse. And we brought him back to the storehouse and picked him up and brought him back, got him clothes. And Jared's been constantly working with him. And it's been hard. It's been messy. He's got quite, some, quite a few stories he could share with you about some of the difficulties of like serving someone in this scenario. But he, he had eyes to see him, right? And he, he changes the agenda. He's driving on the road, decides, you know what? I'm going to turn around. I'm going to help because I feel that God wants me to help this person, right? And, and that's the way it should be. Sometimes we can say, well, you know, I'm, I'm just too busy. I'll leave it to the pastors. I'll leave it to those more gifted than, than it is to me. But let me tell you one of the problems of that just for you personally is. The problem becomes your heart. Right? If you cultivate a small heart of compassion and love for people, then life, it may be smooth, maybe smooth sailing, but you'll never know, and those of you who have done this, you know this, you'll never know the mighty wind of the Holy Spirit kind of in the sails of your soul, like pushing you along. You never know what it's like to be used by God to serve people and going out of your way and changing your agenda and being so blessed by doing so. So the Bible affirms that. You are blessed by serving others. Listen to the Proverbs 19.17. Whoever is generous... To the poor, that's one group of marginalized people in the Bible. In the Old Testament, there was the poor, there was the orphan, there was the widow, and there was what was called the sojourner. We would probably use the word maybe homeless, didn't have a place. And so here's this one person. Whoever is generous to the poor lends to the Lord, and he will repay him for his deed. There's like, well, that's, that's, a, that's pretty, pretty strong. Uh, Proverbs 22, 9, whoever, whoever has a bountiful eye, okay, a, a generous eye, will be blessed, for he shares his bread with the poor. Remember, Jesus' main call here is to go in the Gospel of Matthew. It's going to culminate with go make disciples. Are you willing to ask Jesus, not only to open up your eyes to see people in need around you, but to ask him to make you willing to change your agenda when he so prompts you to do so, okay? Um, are you willing to do that? Are you willing to ask him, God, help, help me see and help me be willing to change my agenda when you want me to? Um, there are people that God puts in your path that you are uniquely gifted, called, and equipped to minister to, even if you don't feel like you are. Number three, have hearts to pray. Now, we're going to jump down all the way to the end of the passage, down in verse 36 through 38. And we find in the story, and I don't have time to kind of look at each of these stories in detail, but we, we see in this passage, we have a woman uh, who's healed of a disease. She's had for a decade. We have, um, and Jesus has raised a little girl back to life. Uh, in this passage, we, we, he also gave uh, two blind men sight. He casts out a demon. He calls the man who was mute to be able to speak all in one day. It's a pretty busy day, right? If I was just us one person, I'd be like, I'm exhausted, I need to take a nap. Right? But this is like, this is all, the, all this in one day. And Matthew sums up his day in verse 36 and shows us 
that there is great need in the world, an immense amount of need because our world is broken. And now we see Jesus not only call his disciples to join him, remember they're following him, they're watching, but in many ways he kind of looks at us as well. So look at verse 36. He saw the crowds and he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Have you ever wondered what, what was going through Jesus' mind when he saw people? You ever wonder, like, what it goes through God's mind when he sees me? Well, here we get some insight, right? Matthew gives us insight into the soul, as it were, of God. <laughs> it says he had compassion, and that word is strong. In the original, the original language, this is English we're reading, but the original language is what's called Greek. It was a language. And that Greek word there, the strongest word for, it's the strongest word for compassion or pity that can be used. It's actually the root word is a word for gut. Gut. He had compassion. It's like down in his gut. What it really means is that he saw, when Jesus saw brokenness, it's like it made him sick to his stomach. Not in disgust, not like, oh, I can't stand to see that, but he was so absorbed with the pain that other people were going through that it made him sick. That's what it means when he says he had compassion. His stomach was churning. His gut was churning because of this. The plight of man moves the heart of God. Isn't that wonderful to think about your own personal situation? Like it moves the heart of God. He feels the world's pain. He feels your pain. He's moved when he sees sickness and sorrow and hunger and loneliness and injustice and all the different things that go on in the pains of people's lives. Thomas Goodwin, who was a Puritan, um, talked about this. This is part of that book I mentioned about earlier. Uh, he talks about, he says, that, he says, he talks about how this high and holy Christ, right, who's God, does not cringe at reaching out and touching dirty sinners and numbed sufferers. He cannot hold, he cannot bear to hold back. And I love it, he kind of illustrates it like he talks about, he says, many times, uh, many times we think of Jesus touching us, maybe reaching us like a, the way a little boy reaches out to touch a slug for the first time, he says, right? And a little boy touches it for the first time. His face is kind of cringed, you know, uh, cautiously maybe extending an arm, like, I don't know if I want to touch that thing or not. And, you know, and then when he, when he touches it, kind of giving out a yelp of disgust, like, oh, that's gross. It feels gross. We kind of think of God sometimes that way, but that's, that's the exact opposite we see in the Gospels here, right? He doesn't do that at all. Text says here, Jesus was broken over the brokenness of human beings. And the reason he had this kind of churning in his gut was because he saw the people, it says, you're being harassed. You're like being harassed. Harassed by who? Harassed by sin. Harassed by Satan. Harassed by the world's system. Harassed by things that they have done and things that have been done to them, right? There's all of that encapsulated into one. He saw them hurting, unable to do anything about it. And then he says he calls, him, he calls them sheep without a shepherd. Well, what does that mean? Well, with, without a shepherd, sheep would many times die from the elements. They die from thieves. They die from predators. Uh, they, they die from hunger. They get easily lost. They become fearful with little chance of ever finding their way back home. This is how God sees the masses of humanity. It's like they were, they're wandering, wandering aimlessly through life, suffering with no one to care for them. And look at how God, ex- uh, think about how God expresses this to Jonah. If you go back to the Old Testament, there's a guy named Jonah. And you maybe, if you're unfamiliar with the Old Testament or the Bible, Jonah you probably know. <laughs> you think Jonah and the whale is typically the story. But the, the point of that book culminates in chapter 4, where God gives us one of the most beautiful, powerful descriptions of his heart, which is very similar here to what we see here in chapter 9 of Matthew. And in that, what's happened in that story of Jonah, as you get to the end of the book, Jonah has called the people of Nineveh to repent. And they're a wicked city. And I could give you all kinds of, we've preached through Jonah before, but they were a wicked city. I mean, they, they were killing people. It was very bad. 
And he goes into the city. He calls them to repent. It was like the worst gospel message ever. It was like not even turn or burn. It was just burn was his kind of gospel message. You're all going to die. And he walks away. And the people repent, right? They repent. And Jonah goes and sits on top of a mountaintop. He pouts like a little little kid, right? Who's upset like his toys were taken away. And he's looking down at the city and he's cringing over the fact that they repented. He's upset. He's mad. And he waits for God to change his mind and for God to bring down lightning and kill these people. This is Jonah. And as he's sitting there one day, it's scorching hot, it's in the desert, and he's looking down at the city, he's upset, he's mad at God, like, why'd you send me on this mission? It was a complete failure. <laughs> Everyone repented. This is, I'm a complete failure. And so he's, uh, he's looking down, and this vine kind of, God makes his vine grow up, because God loves him, you know? He still loves his, his prophet. He sends his vine and covers him with a little bit of shade, and it says Jonah loved, he rejoiced. He did like a, an Irish river dance around this vine kind of thing. I imagine him doing that. He's just super excited about this vine, and he sits down, he just says, ah, oh, I love it. I feel comfortable. And then God the next day sends this giant worm to eat it. <laughs> he eats the vine, and the vine disintegrates, right? It withers and goes away, and there is the sun hitting Jonah, and now he's like, I just want to die. All right, in light of all of that, here's what God says. Jonah 4, verse 10. This is a kind of culmination of that book. The Lord says, you pity the plant. You love the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. Should I not love, pity here, Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who don't know their right hand from their left? And also much cattle. That's, that's another part of the story. <laughs> so, so God compares a plant, which Jonah used for comfort, okay, to the people of Nineveh who were lost. And God points to the plant and tells Jonah that he didn't do anything to make this plant come about, right? He, did, he didn't expend any labor, any energy. He didn't plant it. He didn't toil. He didn't sacrifice. He didn't prune. Right? He didn't do anything to make this thing come into being. Yet Jonah loved it with all of his heart. He treasured it. And God says, in essence, to Jonah, Jonah, should, shouldn't I have even more love, right? The, the same word that Jonah used for the plant, for what I created, like the work of my hands, Right? Who, who uh, the crown of my, all of my creative acts, who I have nurtured and fed and provided for, um, and who will never go out of existence, should I care a little bit more <laughs> for them than this plant? I mean, Nineveh had taken his gifting, they'd taken his image, they distorted it, they twisted it, it was full of chaos. It was, it was full of confusion. Their moral compass had been hijacked by sin. They were completely backward. That's why it says they didn't know their right hand from their left. I mean, everything was backwards and reversed. And it's like, Jonah, I love, I love, it's like God takes Jonah through the mass of humanity and he looks down with him, down at this mass of people. And he just like looks at, just like Jesus looks down at this crowd, and he says, look at him, Jonah. Right? I mean, they're, they're broken, they're confused, they're trying passionately, okay? It's like what Scott was praying earlier. They're trying with every fiber of their being to find life, right? They're trying to find hope and life in this world, but they're coming up short every single day. Every night they go to bed with a sense of hopelessness. It's on their soul and vanity weighing them down. They're, they're stuck. They don't know how to get out. They don't know their right hand from their left. They don't know anything different than how they live. They don't know anything different. Look at them, Jonah, is what he says. I imagine that. Look at them in the eyes. See the hopelessness written on their faces. Jonah, don't you see them? Don't you care about them? They're so much more valuable than this ridiculous vine. They're more valuable than the things that bring you comfort. The vine only lasts of the day. These people will last forever. Look, Jonah. Look, Parkside. Look at the people. Look at their suffering. Look at their hopelessness. Look at their aimlessness. They're like sheep without a shepherd. Why, why don't we see people like that? That's how Jesus saw them, right? 
many times, like Jonah, it's because we obsess over, we treasure what makes us comfortable. We get these things around us to pad our lives so that we don't feel what, what, is, what is going on around us. We obsess over our preferences rather than over a lost and dying world. We'd rather not be bothered. We'd rather stay in our comfortable little bubbles of religion. We, we'd rather play church and then in turn kind of bite and devour each other. I mean, what a wasted life, right? What a wasted life if that's what the church is. We spend our days complaining about things in the church. It's kind of what we do, right? We, we complain about the music, the youth group, the, pol- the policies that are in place, right? We tear each other apart while the world out there is dying in need of us. We are the hope of the world. Why? Because we have the hope of the world. We, like Jonah, we pack up our toys and we go home and we leave those people away. We spend our week going to church events, talking to only Christian people if we can, rubbing shoulders with, the, with broken, lost people if, if we have to. Right? If we had our choice, we'd never be around them at all. Um, and then my own personal favorite, what we typically do is like if, we have our, if our dog has a problem, we look for a Christian veterinarian, right? If we have a health problem, we look for a Christian doctor. We have tooth pain, we look for a Christian dentist. We have Christian radio, Christian TV, Christian T-shirts, Christian music, Christian movies, Christian theme parks. We got Christian everything right around us just to keep us in our own little padded place. Meanwhile, the world's suffering and dying. They're going to hell. But hey, at least, at least we're comfortable, right? At least we know our Bibles well. Good for us. We can check off all the boxes. Meanwhile, everyone else is suffering and dying, and we're comfortable in our own little Christian ghettos. The result is that we have a people then who rarely exhibit compassion for the world at their door. We lose the prophetic vision of being God's people to go minister to a lost and broken and hurting world. And the world sees us and goes like, I don't want anything to do with that. You say, well, what do we do? How do we change that? And this is what Jesus says. He says, pray. You're like, really? Yeah, yeah, pray. And look at this. Look at verse 37. This is so important. He said to his disciples, and it turned to us, hey, you know what? The harvest is plentiful. There's a lot of brokenness out there. <laughs> but the laborers, there are a few. That was, that was 2,000 years ago. Still the case today. Therefore, in light of all of that, pray earnestly, pray passionately to the Lord of the harvest, that is God, to send out laborers into his harvest. This language is really interesting. Why would, I don't know if you, I read this, this is what I think. Why did Jesus want us to pray for him to send out laborers into his harvest? Does that sound weird to you? Like, why am I asking God to send out laborers into his harvest? Shouldn't it read something like, pray for people to get out there. (laughs) Pray for people to move. Pray for yourself to move, right? He didn't say that. He says, actually ask God to send forth people to help. It's interesting. Why do you do it that way? The reason, and you know this is the case if you've ever done this, the reason we are to talk to God about him sending people out is because the more you ask God to send people because you see the brokenness out there and you ask, God, please send people, you know what he does? He sends you. (laughs) Your heart starts to change. When you engage God, and you pray for God to, to, to help. You pray for God to work in people's lives. You pray for God to send people into the, into the world, to, to reach people, love people, serve people. He starts changing your heart, right? And you start aligning with the heart of God. And you go, you know what, God, I think I'm going to answer to this my own prayer here. I think I should probably go, right? This is what happens. I challenge you to pray, pray for God to give more people um, eyes and hearts of Jesus, to send more people to help us minister to people here at Parkside, right? You ask God, sometimes people ask like, you know, um, um, what's our numbers and how we grow as a church and how do we get more people? That's typically like modern church day movement, right? How do you get more people you know, in, the, in, your, in your pews and modern church growth movement, blah, blah, blah. It's like, I could care less about the numbers, really, honestly. I don't have a clue. 
Someone asked me that one time, like, how many people we have here? I don't know. I have no idea. I know it's fall break and half the people are gone today, but that's okay. I don't, I don't care the numbers. I really don't. I used to. When I was younger, it was a problem for me. I always, like, my security was wrapped up in, like, how many people are listening to me right now? Right now, I don't care if it's just one of you. If ever I your sleep, which you might be, that's okay with me. But I'm just, what I'm saying, what I am interested in, though, is more people joining the mission. I'm more interested with people, more people joining to jump in, to actually love, proclaim the gospel, serve people. And if, that gets, if more people come to do that, I'm game. That's why we don't, we don't play like the church thing, like the you know, revolving door of like, hey, you, we do church better than that church down the street, and you should come here because our program's better than this one, blah, blah, blah. I don't care, <laughs> okay? That's not what we're interested in. We're interested in people jumping on board to be like Jesus, to serve and love people and proclaim the gospel to a lost and dying world, right? Amen. That's what we're looking for. Thank you. I appreciate that. <laughs> Someone was listening. This is like, um, not that the rest of you weren't. I'm not, you know. Um, I used to, side note, I used to be in a church that had a, you know, a, a diverse group of people, and, mo- and a lot of them were African American. It was great because they would like talk back to me. It was awesome. Like, it, was, it was good. So if you ever want to do that, that's fine. So this is what happened, by the way, to Martin Luther. You guys know Martin Luther. I was a friend of Martin Luther back in the uh, 16th uh, century Reformation, okay? And so he was happening, the Reformation starting, and there was a friend that agreed to pray for Martin Luther. Hey, I'm going to pray for you. I'm going to pray for you as you go out. I'm going to pray for God to send more people in. Matter of fact, he did so much, he retired from his work and decided to go to a monastery just so he could pray all day long for God to send forth people into the, into the, uh, to help Martin with the Reformation. One night it says he had a dream. He saw a vast field. Uh, as big as the world, he said, with one solitary man seeking to reap it. He's out there just trying as best he can to get all the, reaping all the, all the harvest there. And he says it was heartbreaking to see it in his dream. He caught a glimpse of the reaper's face, and it was Martin. It was Martin Luther. And he said he woke up from the dream. He caught the message. <laughs> he, said, he said not one man can do this job alone. He then quit the monastery, and he joined Luther in the Reformation period, right? Because that's what he was doing. He was praying, and God actually said, okay, time for you to go. I shared this story with you before, too, but I just think it's so good. Robert Mary McShane, young pastor, died like age 30 in Scotland back in the 1800s. But, but before that, in his, in his 20s, he was, he was praying for God to move his heart, and he took a walk. Sometimes it's a great thing to do, by the way. Just take a walk and pray. You don't have to, like, pray in your room. It's fine. Your closet, whatever. You can do that. But you can also pray and move your feet at the same time. It's a good deal. So he's walking, and he listened to what he said. I made my rounds through some of the most miserable habitations I ever beheld. So he went to kind of a, you know, a hard part of town. Such scenes I never before dreamed of. He said, uh, what, why am I such a stranger to the poor of my native town? I have passed their doors thousands of times. I've admired the huge black piles of building with their lofty chimneys breaking the sun's rays. Why have I never ventured within? How dwells the love of God in me? What embedded masses of human beings are huddled together, unvisited by friend or minister? No one cares for our souls is written over every forehead. Can you imagine that statement? Like, no one cares for our souls is written over every forehead. Awake, my soul. Why should I give hours and days any longer to the vain world when there is such a word of misery at my very door? Lord, put your own strength in me. Confirm your your every good resolution. Forgive my past long life of uselessness and folly. Lastly, have faith to believe. You say, okay, how do we... How do we minister to people when it's so hard? And this is we get to this point every time on Sunday morning. If you're new to us, we always get back to Jesus and the gospel and the motivation of grace. And the answer to the question is first, we need to believe, 
right? That Jesus is sufficient for these things. That's the first thing. We gotta believe that he is, but also believe that Jesus has, through faith, through grace, empowered us with the work of the Holy Spirit, made us now sufficient for these things. We are more equipped than we realize. We have the Holy Spirit of God. If you're a believer, if all of Christ, you've got the Spirit of God in you, right? You can, through the Holy Spirit of God, see people with Jesus' eyes, listen to people with Jesus' ears, you know, serve people, as it were, with Jesus' hands, move with Jesus' feet. You can do that because you have the Spirit of God in you. And the fuel for that ministry, what will set our hearts on fire for the God's harvest, is to see the love of Jesus for others, but also we have to see the love of Jesus for us before we will ever be moved out, right? Look back at verse 22 with me. If you go back up there, you see this lady, remember, that kind of interrupted Jesus' walk um, to, uh, to go help Jairus' daughter. And, and we find that Jesus calls her out, right? He turned around, he spoke to her. Why did Jesus call her out? Couldn't he have, like, followed up later? I mean, he had, he had someplace important to go. What, wasn't, uh, wasn't the point just to fix her physical ailment and move on? But what does he do? He talks about here, he, he says to her, take heart, verse 22, daughter, your faith has made you well. What was he doing? He, she, she believed. He calls her daughter, right? She, he's welcoming her into the family of God. God's welcoming her. All she wanted was for someone to, to hold her, take care of her, and now she is wrapped up in the embrace of a savior, right? He has done more than just fix the physical problem. There's a spiritual problem, and he's fixed that. You have to see that she was a lost sheep that Jesus locked in on and not just healed, but brought her into the family. That's us. Now look down at verse 24 again. It says here, he said, go away for the girl is not dead but sleeping. And it says in verse 25, the crowd had been put outside. He went in, took her by the hand and the girl arose. You could see in that story back again, Jairus, tears in his eyes, right? Tears flowing from his face. His daughter, his only child has died. And it's all over as far as he's concerned. But I love how the other Gospels tell us, some, tell us more information. Mark tells us that he actually gives us the word that Jesus used, the language that Jesus used. It's a word called Talitha. That's what he calls the little girl. Right? So he sits down by her bed. And the word, the word Talitha means little girl, but it's actually more intimate than that. The word that he uses when he sits beside this bedside, it's a word that a mother would call her little girl. Probably the best translation may be something like honey or sweetie. It's kind of the word that Jesus used. And he tells her, he sits down, he tells her to arise. And Jesus is doing exactly, when he sits down next to her, he's doing exactly what maybe his, this girl's parents might have done any given morning. He sits down, he takes her by the hand, and he says, honey, sweetie, it's, it's time to get up. <laughs> she gets up, right? <laughs> she raises up. I mean, it's a powerful statement. He reaches down through death and gently just brings her right back up through it. When Jesus takes her by the hand and he touches her, it's reassuring, it's comforting, right? It's, it's a whole comforting aspect for her. And when you were little, you maybe remember that if, you're, if your parent had you by the hand, you kind of maybe felt like everything was going to be okay. They, they got me, right? You knew if you slipped, they would hold you up. At least hopefully they would, right? They seemed like they were 10 feet tall, they were huge, they were big, and they had you. Jesus is, as it were here, the ultimate parent who has you by the hand, and will bring you through this darkest night. And when he met us for the first time, when we were dead in our sins, as Ephesians 2 says, the Lord of the universe didn't yell at us or shake us. He sat down beside us as it were, took us by the hand and said, honey, buddy, it's time to get up. It's time to wake up. And you know what happened? Your eyes opened. <laughs> the, the blinders came off. And you saw for the first time 
you're a Christian, you know what I'm talking about, right? You experienced the flowing, flowing grace of God into your life, and your life was transformed. And friends, that, that kind of experience, that understanding of who we are in Christ and what he's done for us is what moves our hearts to reach out and minister to those around us in need. So it moves us to pray and take action. It's what moved the early church, right? And sadly, the absence of the gospel story is why it's so important. The absence of understanding the gospel, going back to what has transformed our life, going back to what Jesus has done, the absence of that makes people cold-hearted or it just gets a mechanical religion, right? We just do things to check the boxes. So I encourage you to join in the ministry of this church. And I'm not just talking about joining a program, I'm talking about investing into the lives of others around you, working to build community and then serve the community together. I'm talking about finding people, right, to bring to the church to experience the love of Christ. Jesus has you here, not just to take up space, but to use you in ways you never imagined. I love how Jonathan Edwards once put it. He said, he said you want to you kind of evaluate, he was asked about evidences of faith, evidence that people actually truly have come to know Jesus. And he said this, the surest test of an authentic work of the Spirit that God has gone and changed people's life, is an eagerness, an eagerness to reclaim the hidden beauty of those who remain unloved. It's seeing brokenness. It's seeing pain and being willing to go in and whatever it costs to serve. Why? Because I I know my Savior cost him everything to come save me, right? I'm going to, as we're going to communion, and as we do, okay, if you're new with us, there's a little bread and, and juice and a little cup in front of you, okay? But before you do that, Okay, we do this not for mechanical purposes. And if you feel like you're just in mechanical mode, don't do it, okay? <laughs> this is for a time for you to reflect on Jesus. I'm going to leave this quote up there. I'm also going to put up the machine quote earlier I gave you, his prayer, which I thought was fantastic, that he asked God to change his heart to see people. And maybe just pray that back to God as you see it, right? Ask God to, are you willing to ask God to go, will you, will you, will you open my eyes to help me see people like you see people? We all have to admit today that none of us see people like Jesus sees people, right? So we want to ask him, God, help me see him like you, and help me want to change my agenda. Help me want to move towards that, right? Help, help me. Open up my eyes. And forgive me for my kind of past of just absorbing in my own kind of safety and comfort and my own agenda and not being willing to serve you by serving others, okay? And so as we take the, the bread and juice, it's a, Jesus told us to take it in remembrance of him. It's nothing magical. It doesn't transform you. It's a physical way to remember the body of Jesus broken for us and his blood poured out for us. We do in remembrance of him. So we'll have some quiet time. Have a moment where you can kind of just reflect. I'm going to pray, and then, uh, and then we'll sing one final song together. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the opportunity um, to reflect on this passage. It is powerful to see the life of Jesus. Again, I'm so thankful that we... We're not just bystanders in this story. We're not just on the outside. We are, we are these people. And God, you went out of your way to not only um, look down on us, but to be born, to live a life that we could never live. We, we, read this, we read about this life of Jesus, and we know we can't live that. We know we don't. But you lived the life that we couldn't live, and then you died to death that we should have died because of our sin to save us and to bring us to yourself so that we can be turned around and be called followers of you, Christians, little Christs, so we can live out the life of Jesus uh, in the lives of others. God, make us those people. Transform us, forgive us, uh, move us, so that, God, we have a heart and we have eyes to see as you did. In Jesus' name, amen.